we're going to recap last week. We're in Colossians 1, and we did verse 1 and 2. We got a long ways last week, and this week we're going to do a big, solid 11 verses, I promised you. So who are we? Who are we? Um, when we recap, we'll get into, we talked about what it is to mean a saint, but we're going to drill down a little bit more on, on who are we. So um, last week we got into what it really means to be a saint from the perspective of what Paul means when he just goes to a group of believers and says, saints. And remember we talked about, he could call you anything. He could just be like, hey, church, you know, hey, believers, hey, followers of the way. But Paul uses a word specifically. So it's important, right? And in context, it's important to understand why Paul is saying this to the believers at Colossae. It's one of those cases where Paul could, um, easily just look you in the face and say hey believer but he chooses that word specifically right we drilled down on that really well and i really believe that we should realize the weight of it and that's why we dug in on it with only two verses last week because as believers we're not just different it's easy to see that we're different as a church because we come together on sunday we're different because we say we believe in jesus we're different because we should act different believe different Um, but we're really called out by a holy god We've been called by him because of his holiness and out of his holiness. And this is a very big revelation about our current state of being as we are new creations in Christ, right? So we saw that there's evidence in the Old Testament for what it looks like to be a saint. So this isn't a new theme. They knew in the old Israel days, what it meant to be set aside, to be holy, to be the holy ones, the Kedoshim, and now we're looking at, in the New Testament, right, this evidence. So, And uh, we finished by seeing that our response to this new state of being is hope. We drilled it all the way down to one word, and we found out that this response is hope, or hopefulness, and the hope that we have in his saving grace, and to share that hope with other people, okay? So Paul has told them that they're saints, And in the following prayer for the believers at Colossae, we're going to learn what our standing in Christ is as saints. So we're going to learn a little bit about who we are. So let's read, and we're going to get into Colossians 1, verse 3. And we're going to go through verse, we're actually going to go through to 14 at the end of the study. But just for now, we're going to read Colossians 1, 3 through 14. Colossians 1. 3 to 14, Paul writes this, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. It also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased in praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as, we, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And we'll go back and flesh out the last couple of verses later. But just to jump into the beginning, Paul has already greeted the believers as we went in the beginning of the letter. In the first two verses, he's greeted them. And after he greets them, he starts this prayer. A prayer that covers down on three big elements here that we need to go over. And that is faith, hope, and love. And you guys have probably heard those things before. And they are kind of the theme of the gospel. Faith, hope, and love. And what is the greatest of those? Love. Love is the greatest of those. Right? And we'll talk about that a little bit. But the first two, faith and love, are covered right away. And are tied up in a thankful prayer right, for the steadfastness in truth which is why we come together and constantly study, which is why you should study on your own. Um, and as I told you, the conversation that I had yesterday with this fellow, like the big difference is where do you rest your truth? Do you believe that the word of God is true in the things that are written in it? If you add other documents that contradict it, you take away from the truth. You are saying it's not the truth. If you believe other things that aren't in here, you are negating the truth. It doesn't mean it's still not true. You are just no longer believing it. And so in this case, Paul is kind of exhorting them here, right? It's their thankful prayer for their steadfastness in truth. And remember that we talked about some of the problems that are happening uh, with the Colossians here and they're dealing with, and we went over the introduction a couple of weeks ago, right? There are what we would kind of call pre-Gnostics, which are probably more like old second temple Jews that are real spiritualists that have a lot of ideas about Gnosticism, if you will. But as we know, Gnosticism as a thought didn't show up until uh, the second century, but it, it kind of looks the same. It's people trying to gain knowledge out of their own, you know, wisdom. And they were big headed philosophers that were coming up with their own ways to either get to heaven or that they could be above God, better than God, divine. We fill in the blank, just a bunch of uh, essentially, theological garbage but and there were judaizers there as well and they're all trying to get these believers essentially to change the way that they think they make their way into the church and they try to change the way people think about jesus about god about the way they practice their faith about salvation and how it is attained so they will try to sway them right and their orthopraxy if you will which is a really big crazy word that basically means how you practice your faith but the report that Paul is getting is that their faith in Christ Jesus is strong and that in that church there, they love the saints. They love each other. They realize that they're set aside. The church has pulled itself aside and they love one another, which is really important. But this is yet another reminder about the importance of understanding the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified because the people that are here in Colossae are standing firm in the truth of who Jesus Christ is in the face of adversity, which I think is a lesson for us if you look at it, because this is what one of the things that we're called to do in the church is that there are lies everywhere. There are lies in our news. There are lies in other uh, uh, faiths. There are lies in uh, the liberal thought. And when I use the word liberal, I use it because the definition theologically is to remove yourself from orthodoxy. So like we know who Jesus is, we have the Bible. People will add to it, take away from it. It becomes liberalized to move away from the orthodoxy of the text. As we stand firm on the truth, I know it's true. 
God has revealed himself. There's historically only one person who's raised themselves from the dead. There's plenty of evidence for it. I don't need a bunch more. I'm going to trust in that. And then my testimony just lays more on top of that for me because I'm able to you know, express to people that I know that God works well in my life because of how he has worked in me, in my family, in my marriage, right? We're called to do the same. We don't capitulate to false gospels. We don't capitulate to non-truths. We stand firm. We don't allow things into the church that are questionable. There are churches doing that now. They are allowing things into it that are questionable, and the leadership in the church is unwilling to say, stop, we preached Christ crucified, and that's it. We are not getting into politics. Not that it's not something that shouldn't be talked about, but we don't take a political stand on things that aren't consistent with the Word of God. And we don't let something in that's unbiblical. That's what church leadership is for. That weird word that people have heard before, shepherding, right? And that's what men are called to do is shepherd their families and shepherd their church. Shepherds don't ever lead the sheep to the lion. They don't lead their sheep to the wolf. That is ridiculous. Conversely, shepherds carried a big stick with them. And when the wolf gets close, you beat it down. That's our call, to not let the wolf in, right? When Luke starts his gospel out, he addresses Theophilus, the guy who sent him to find out this information. He says that, he's writing it, and I'm quoting from the beginning of Luke here, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He uses the word certainty. We don't waver on our faith on the essentials of the gospel. What Luke is saying back to Theophilus is like, I am writing these things so that you know 100% this is what happened with this man, Jesus. So when you read the Gospel of Luke, you are getting a testimony that says every single word in this is true, period. That's it. There's no wavering on it. We can sit and debate about it from a big philosophical point of view. At the end of the day, we should high five and agree it's all true. Who Jesus is. We agree on who the Father is, who the Holy Spirit is, how we are saved through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, crucified for our sins. Then they are known for their love for one another, which is how the church is supposed to be built. We are called to come together and love one another. We're called to come together and move each other. We're called to support each other financially. We're called to break bread with one another. We're called to pray for one another. And I, in my humble opinion, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job. We've come together, we're supporting things in the community, we've made ourselves available for one another. Sometimes that's it, right? And I don't know if you guys have ever been in a church where you just never felt like that was a thing, where you go in the door and people smile really big when you walk in and you shake somebody's hand and you get in and people are really singing and getting along well, and on the way out at some point you can just feel yourself leaving the veil, and then there's no church anymore, like it's just a building with happiness inside of it, but then it doesn't extend past the doors. You know, it just seems like sometimes people in a church congregation need to know that there's other people there that are available to them. They might not always need your help, but just for you to say, what can I do for you? Allows them, you know, this sort of peace, like the people there actually care that my day is going to be all right if I'm having a financial problem that they're helping me, if I need help with my kids, my car's broken down, they have an extra money, whatever that might be. 
So extending ourselves, loving one another. Jesus was clear in, 13, in John 13, 35, when he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, right? The words of Christ were very clear. As a church, we have to love one another. Or guess what? We're not the church. It's just that simple. If you walk in and out of a church building and they are not doing those things for one another, they are not the church, period. The evidence stands on itself. And I will stand on this book and say, clearly, if you're not loving one another inside of a church, it is not the church, it is a church building. I have a better word for it. We'll call it a synagogue. People just go to it and lay their sacrifice and leave thinking it's enough. It's just not enough. But we need to participate like family. That's the important thing. We participate like we're all family. We celebrate with one another when it's appropriate, right? When good things happen, we should get behind each other and cheer each other on. We mourn with each other when there's sadness, when there's loss, when there's death, whatever that might be. And we care for each other's needs. And we help each other with chores, with things that just need to be done. That's what we're called to do. And um, as you get older, I feel like this is kind of the important part. It's like, as you get older, you feel like you can pour kind of more and more into it. You know, as your, you, as your kids aren't little anymore, as your finances change a little bit, it just seems like as time goes by, it's like God keeps preparing you and preparing you and preparing you until a place where you're like, oh my gosh, like I now have the ability to pour in more. And, and, and um, it's just an amazing place to be. I know it is for Carol and I, like you get to a point where you're just like, man, I can be really much more helpful than I ever have been. And then thankful for people who have helped you. When Paul talks about hope here, it's not about the hope the Colossians have, which is kind of an interesting twist. We talk about faith, hope, and love, and the hope he's talking about here, it's this uh, interesting Greek word that describes as the expectation of what is sure. So when I hope for something, it's like I am expecting, I am expecting something that I know is going to happen, right? And we all know what that's like because you have expectations in your life of things that are going to happen and that's what hope really is is reliance on that expectation of you know what is true so then we have to ask what is the hope or the expectation of surely laid up that is surely laid up for them in heaven because that's what paul is saying that this hope is laid up for the colossians in heaven what is it it's the truth of the gospel that's the hope that's laid up for them and that is our hope and we've talked about hope a lot lately it's true. We can be sure of it. We don't need to question it, although I suggest you study it, but you don't need to question it, right? We don't need to question Christ's work. We know that it has been done for us, right? It's true. It's complete. It's finished. Our uncertainty does not affect the, the assurance, which is a really important thing to say, right? I don't, you don't have to raise your hand. It's a rhetorical question. Anybody been unsure of their faith at some point in their life? Multiple times a week sometimes. Sometimes a bunch of times in a day. And at those really bad points in your life, sometimes you go on for a long period of time, like just wondering if he's got me. Right? So here's the truth that's hard to hear, but you need to know how big your God is. It doesn't matter how weak you are the assurance is still there in him. He's got you. The weaker you get, the more he's pouring in. That's good news. That should build up your hope. 
I'm not saying go act like a, a moron and go do all the things you know you shouldn't do. What I'm saying is that sometimes life just gets a hold of you and it's just hard to get away from it. It'll drag you down, it'll drag down your hope, it'll drag down your brain, your thoughts will go to the right place and you feel like you're pouring in and you can't get ahead, you're spinning your tires in the mud. You know what? It does not affect the work that he did on the cross and he did it for you. He finished it for you because he loves you. And that's really what love is, right? Because as we talk about what the church does, who do we pour into the most? The people who need the help the most. That's the example. As we pour into the people that are needed the most in the church, Christ does the same for us when we need him most. He keeps pouring into us. Now, hope is really amazing. It's so reciprocal. Very important to remember. Our uncertainty does not affect heaven's assurance. When the truth comes in, it bears fruit, right? And we talk about bearing fruit. This is bearing fruit. The way we love one another and pour into one another, as it does in this group here. When the truth resides in us, we love one another sacrificially, and we share the truth of the gospel, not with just each other. We share the truth of the gospel with everybody, with people around us. Sometimes in subtle ways, just because you act like a Christian when you're out around people. You speak differently, you look differently, you act differently, you respond differently. I cannot remember where Carol and I were going to church at the time, but here's like a little example that's different. You guys pray before you eat when you're out in public? Does anybody else do that? Like you hold hands at the table? Maybe you don't hold hands. We hold hands. We hold hands at the table. And uh, we'll pray before we eat, typically. When you tip, I don't care how bad your service is, you better tip 20%. Because some young waiter or waitress just saw you pray to God and you have no idea what's going on in their life. And they came and served you, even if it was the worst service you've ever got. And then when you left, you know what they got? If you left them nothing, those Christians didn't leave me anything. You know what a better convicting story is? Walking away knowing that you gave horrible service and those Christians tipped me 20% and I didn't deserve it. That might not happen, but that's my hope. Because every time I pray in front of somebody, I want them to know I'm benevolent. Because Christ loves me. I can give them 20% of my whatever I went out to eat pizza or whatever. Just the little things you do. It's one example of probably millions. The little things you do in front of people can have a big impact on somebody else's day or life, especially since we don't know what's going on in the lives of people around us. So Paul gets into here, uh, sense Epaphras. And Epaphras was this guy, Paul, exhorts. we talked about him in the introduction. He's the guy who brings the gospel message. Um, and brings it from Ephesus over to uh, Colossae. Paul exhorts him for bringing the gospel to them, and the fruit has increased, and so has their understanding of grace. So they are studying together. They are learning together. They are growing together. They understand what grace means. And in verse 9, much like in verse 3 here, it shows that Paul lives a life of constant thankfulness. This is an important lesson about the way we lead our life and our family. We were just talking about this last week. The way we lead our life and our family, everything should be covered in prayer. Everything in your life should be covered in prayer. Everything in your life should be covered in thankfulness. Reminding your spouse of the blessings that God has bestowed upon your family. Reminding your kids that it's God who provides. 
God who heals, and God who saves. Even when your day's not good, even when you're not getting along, for us it's standing in the kitchen holding hands, even, like yesterday was one of those days, a lot going on, it just gets stressful and you find yourself talking to each other in a way, you know what I'm saying, because you guys have all been there, you're like, you can, like, you can almost feel those big fat words coming out of your mouth. And I'm like, this one's going to hurt when I let it out. And then it comes out and you're like, yeah, it was too much. You know what I'm saying? Because you all have done it to one another. Everything in your house should get covered in prayer and let your kids see it. Everything does, even when things are bad, when things are good as well. It's easy, though, when things are really good to be like, thank you, God, for all this stuff. We are prospering. The cars are both running. The bills are paid. There's tons of food in the fridge. Gosh, look how good God is. What about the fridge is empty? Our tanks are empty. The cars broke down. I don't know if I'm going to pay the bill. There's water leaking in through the roof. God, you're so good that I live in a house in the greatest idea of a country in the world, and it's safe, and it's not a police state. And I have the gospel in front of me, and I know if I died today, I'm going to heaven. How about remembering all of that every time you pray? Prayer and thankfulness. Constant prayer and thankfulness. It's a stage you set, and when you set it, your kids get to see it. And as they grow in it, you leave a legacy for under your kids' understanding. No matter how bad it gets or how good it gets, we put it all before God. Our whole lives need to be filled with more prayer, right? Pray for your home. Pray for your food. It's like the prayer that Jesus tells them to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Provision. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive me for the things I did. Those who trespass against us. Forgive other people. So this idea of the Lord's prayer sets the stage for we pray for our home. We pray for our food. You should be praying for your marriage. Because your marriage is what? The picture of Christ and the church. You should be praying for it all the time. It is the picture of Christ redeeming her, the church, us to himself. Pray for your marriage. Pray for your family. Pray for your community. Keep your church and the individual needs of it lifted up. Which is why uh, our prayers, and when we pray at the beginning, I write your prayers down. We put them, I put them in a book. When I get home, they are prayed for constantly. We constantly pray for this group. Make prayer and thankfulness a part of your daily life. Make the time to pray. It is your time to talk to God. Spend time in prayer out loud with your spouse, with your kids, and spend time in quiet prayer. And when Paul talks to these believers about being filled with the knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom and understanding, he's really referring to spiritual training, like we're doing here. We train each other spiritually, like you should do in your own. Hearing the Word of God, learning the Word of God, and then practicing the truth by loving one another. And when you start to discuss this big overarching thing that I kind of left hanging, Gnosticism, this is one of the problems that they had back then. There's an idea that higher knowledge could be attained through education and through philosophy, through spiritualism. And this is what Paul is going to stand against. Can anybody see this happening in our country today? Go off to college, get a big degree, get a bunch of letters behind your name. Now all of a sudden I'm smarter than those mid-country 
uh, redneck believers that just rest their whole entire life on God's got me. I'm just going to get up and work hard for my family every day and love them and go to church on Sunday. And like all of a sudden, all these people with all this, I mean, air quotes, knowledge, think that they are at some sort of new level and have attained some sort of spiritualism that sets everyone else down on some lower pedestal, like they're all a bunch of morons. It's, it is just untrue. It is untrue. You guys are saved by the king of kings. You don't need some sort of weird spiritualism or some philosophy degree to be better than or to attain some higher knowledge, right? So this is what Gnosticism is doing, and this is what Paul is standing against. This knowledge, the spiritual wisdom that he's talking about, understanding that Paul's discussing, it's really it's practical knowledge. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about really practical knowledge. This book is true. Jesus came. He died for your sins. Practical, simple knowledge. And although it is true that God himself opens our eyes, he does open our eyes and he does soften our hearts, it's also true that the lessons right here from the Bible are very practical truths. They're not hard to understand. I mean, a child can read these and get the idea that loving one another is a good idea. Serving one another is a good idea. Who God is, who Jesus is, how he got here, what he did for our sins, all very practical, right? And Paul is traveling the world telling people about Jesus Christ. That's it. Very simple stuff. Who has most recently raised himself from the dead? Paul got to walk with him. In accordance with Jewish prophecy, Christ came did his ministry, was killed on a cross, spent three days in the grave, rose himself up. He's teaching the truth of that life. He's teaching the truth of Jesus' ministry. He's teaching the truth of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. And his post-death ministry to the apostles. Paul is teaching simple Bible lessons to these people, and it's practical. So, in the world we live in today, where people have all this higher knowledge... I love the one about science because this is the one that always gets me like, uh, I, will, I will love this debate. But the Bible isn't a science book. Okay, no duh. I gotcha. It doesn't say biology or chemistry on the cover. I know. It says the Holy Bible on the cover. I realize it's not a science book. But it doesn't negate the fact that it's true and that God is not consistent with science. He's the author of science. So if your science book isn't consistent with this book, guess which one is wrong? I don't care how many letters are behind your name. It's wrong. And we can debate this up and down. You and your degree are incorrect. And I don't need a bunch of letters to tell you that. I got a pretty simple book here. So I stand on it and I will stand on it until he takes me home. So he's teaching this truth to them and we gain this knowledge not because of special revelation, but we believe in these words because the evidence really is what tells us. And then we add the Holy Spirit to that by opening our eyes and softening our heart. And it just becomes more and more evident and more real in our lives. And we're filled with that knowledge and filled with that spiritual wisdom. And you develop a testimony. And this is our walk. This is our why. And that's how we reach people around us. We know this is true because we study and know why it's true and how the evidence is there. And then when you add your testimony to it, if you've ever had a chance to share your testimony with somebody, it just makes it that much more tangible, that much more real. So what does the wisdom do for us? Well, it should cause at least some sort of change in your life, right? It elicits a response, which I think is an important thing to remind yourself. How does this elicit a response 
to me. It should cause us a change in the way you live, consistent with the teaching we've heard here from Paul. He's telling us to what? Walk or conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the things you do on a daily basis are worthy of God, right? We live essentially to please God. We live for his glory. So that's what we should do. We live to please him. We live to bear good fruit and we live to increase our knowledge. Uh, we, we live to increase our knowledge of God. So as believers, as we've been doing in this group, we study together. We continue to pray for one another. Uh, we continue to serve one another. This is all part of edifying the body and lifting it up in front of God. We continue to serve our community and we dig into the scriptures daily and become more intimate with the father and with our lord and we will do it every sunday we will come and we will dig in like this not commentary but line by line and find out what the word of god says to us right and as we bear fruit and increase in knowledge we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy those are paul's words it's a reminder that like paul said back in philippians that we can do all things through him who strengthens us, right? The strength we stand in the truth of the gospel, not our strength. The knowledge we rely on is not ours. It's his omniscient wisdom. It's not our glory that is shown when we share him to other. It's his glory that's shown. And he is our endurance. He is our joy, right? And I want to read the last two verses. So we're going to get into the last two verses and we'll close up. And this should really change your perspective on who you are. As I said at the beginning, we're going to talk about who we are in him. The last two verses here. Who you are as a believer and how has God changed you. So <clears throat> turn back to Colossians. Go to Colossians 1. And go to 12. I guess it's going to be three verses. 12 through 14. And I'm going to get there. So we just got done talking about Paul strengthening you with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and then in verse 12 he says this giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light verse 13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins so paul reminds us to give thanks again we just we've drilled down on that one constantly giving thanks he's already told us we need to do this constantly but this time he's telling us to give thanks very specifically for the work that has been done in us by our father he's done that work inside of you inside of me he came and put the holy spirit in you he saved your life he made you a new creation what work has he done? In these two and a half verses, he's done these things. One, he qualified you. What did he qualify you for? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He did this through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. This is what makes you a saint. Going back to last week, this is what makes you a saint. He qualified you in this way. This is what makes you a holy one. The second thing he did, he delivered us from darkness to light. Listen to what John says. In 1 John, in his epistle, 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7, it says this. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. 
we are not practicing the truth, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. This is this deliverance where he enters you, he has delivered you, he has cleansed you with his blood, and we are new creations in him. We are delivered from that darkness into his light because he is light. We can no longer live in darkness. Thirdly, he redeemed us. Paul wrote this in Ephesians, and we already covered this in Ephesians 1 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Not our works, the riches of his grace, he's redeemed us. And lastly, he did this. He forgave our sins. Going back to what John says in 1 John 1 9, it says this If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, this is who we are, believers, saints. This is who we are in him when we are saved, when we are fellowshipping together when we are serving him, when we are obedient to him, when we are loving one another as a church, as families, and as a body of Christ. He's qualified you, delivered you, redeemed you, and you are forgiven. This is who you are. When you are a new creation in Christ, you are qualified, delivered, redeemed, and forgiven. It's who you are in Christ. And this is why we're always thankful. Constantly thankful, as Paul said, because now you are a new creation. You are these things. And it increases our hope in him. So to bring it full circle, when we have been changed and we know all of these things, that hope just gives us more and more evidence for what we know is coming. Which is eternity with the Father, delivered to him by the Son through his work on the cross. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for you. We are thankful for these words of Paul just to reassure us of our standing with you, Lord, because of the work that you have done. We fail, we fail, and we fail, and you just continue to win. You continue to serve us. You continue to love us. You come for us in the darkness and deliver us to the light. You redeem us from our sinful state. You love us when we don't deserve. We just ask, Lord, that you are evident in this body that we would continue to love and serve one another, that you would give us the resources to love and serve others, that you would convict us to love and serve others, that you would help us to continue to stay in the truth, that you would make your wisdom, your knowledge evident through your word, that as we continue to study, we become more intimate with you, that our families would grow together in the truth. We are thankful for that daily, Lord. I'm thankful for this group that loves one another and meets weekly and that you continue to richly bless it. And I'm thankful for your son, Jesus, who paid for our sins on the cross. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>